Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. So Romans, man, I'm so excited to be in Romans. It's such a fun book. And I tell you what, buckle up tonight because Romans chapter 1 doesn't pull any punches. Man, Romans chapter 1, Paul, I love Paul. He just tells it how it is. And that's the way it's going to be tonight as we dig into kind of some of the meat and potatoes of the beginning of Romans. I warned you guys on Sunday that the first few chapters, man, they are brutal as Paul really paints this picture of our great need for salvation. He first has to show what debased sinners humanity is. And we're going to get into that tonight as we finish up, hopefully, chapter one. So on Sunday, we opened up the, the book of Romans. We just looked at the beginning of Paul's introduction. Man, we looked at the first, like, seven verses. And really, it was just Paul establishing that he was the one who wrote the letter. We were kind of uh, reintroduced a little bit to Paul. It's been a while since we were in Acts. And so we wanted to just take a minute and remember, hey, who was Paul? You know, we talked about his miraculous conversion, how he was one who was full of himself and a persecutor of Christians and how the Lord just did a work in his life and used him so mightily to spread the gospel all throughout the the Mediterranean, the Asia Minor, and and in Europe. Uh, God did an amazing work through the life of Paul the Apostle. And, And we spend a lot of time looking at his credentials you know, he says, hey, I'm Paul, I'm writing this letter to the Romans, but, but this is who I am, and I love Paul's credentials. Man, he, he opens up with saying, man, I'm Paul. Who's Paul? Boy, Paul is a bondservant of Jesus. He says, I'm a slave of Christ. I belong to Jesus. My life is his. I'm an apostle, he would say next. Uh, God has commissioned me. He's, he's separated me unto this gospel, the good news of Jesus, to be a proclaimer of truth, that God has a call and a purpose on my life, and I go forward with the authority that he gave me, that Jesus gave me. Who is Jesus? The seed of David. He, he was the rightful heir to the throne through the flesh, but according to the resurrection, the Son of God. And because of who Jesus was, we were called saints, and we just looked at this, and really on Sunday, man, kind of the theme and what we ended with was really just this reality that, man, We ought to be those who belong to the Lord, who are owned by the Lord, who are servants of Jesus, who are separated unto his will for our life. Remember Paul? You know, his name was Saul. You guys remember what what Saul meant? It meant sought after one. He was important. Everybody wanted him. But then when he was saved, he became Paul, and it was little. And that was kind of our theme on Sunday. Lord, more of you and less of us. And that was kind of a challenge. You know, it's always a challenge. It's our carnal nature wants more of us and less of God. And so that was kind of Sunday. We said, Lord, we want to be separated unto you. When the world looks at our life, I pray that they see something that's a contrast and something that points to you. This evening, boy, we're going to get a little bit more into it. There's still a little bit of kind of just the, uh, the introduction to go, uh, but we'll, we'll get through it and get into some of the, the rough stuff, controversial stuff. So, uh, yeah, get ready to be offended tonight. Um, verse 8, we'll just jump right in. We won't get offensive here for a little bit. 
Verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, speaking to the Romans, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit amongst you, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So Paul kind of continues on this introduction by, by saying, you know what, I, I, I just want to be where you are. I want to come and encourage you. I thank God for you. And that's really what we begin with tonight is that, that Paul really, he made a point of letting them know that he thanked God for them for their witness there in, in Rome, and we'll get into that a little bit more here in a minute. But it's interesting to me that Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. It's interesting because there is now no mediator between God and man except for Jesus Christ. You know, how was it that Paul communicated with God? How was it that Paul had his relationship with God? It wasn't through a man or a priest or a pastor or a mentor. Uh, Paul here, there's something that's very important for us to understand. That there is no mediator between God and man except Jesus. We have full access to God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, you guys remember when Jesus died on the cross? And there was a couple crazy, earth-shattering things that took place there as Jesus was giving his life for you and for me. Remember the earth? It went dark for three hours. The earth shook. There was an earthquake. And what was that other miraculous thing that happened? And the veil was rent from top to bottom. Now, what is this veil? The veil was this curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies, the place where the, the priests, you know, dealt with the table of showbread and the, you know, the lampstand and the altar of incense, did some priestly duties. But behind that curtain was the, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the kabod, the, the glory, the presence of God. And that was separated from people. You couldn't just kind of march on into the Holy of Holies and say what's up to the Lord. And the high priest could go in there once a year, and even then, there was a special cleansing ceremony. They tied a rope around his waist and bells to him so that if they heard the jingle stop, like maybe the Lord struck him dead because he was a sinful man in God's holy presence, they could pull him out by the rope and not have to go in. It was a special place, but on that day when Jesus gave his life, the veil was rent from top to bottom. History records for us that that veil was a hand breadth wide, three and a half inches that is a thick piece of fabric, torn, not from the bottom to the top. Man didn't do it. God did it. And what's the significance? It opened up the presence of God to all. The Bible now says in Hebrews that we can come boldly before the throne of grace because of what Jesus did. And so now when Paul says, I thank God through Jesus for you, 
Boy, we could just read right over that, breeze right over it, and think nothing of it. But the implications of that statement are huge. That's our reality because of what Jesus did on the cross. And we have access to God. What a wonderful reality that is. And so Paul says, man, I thank uh, God through Jesus. Now, Paul, he genuinely is thankful to God that there are believers in Rome. Now, it was Paul's life mission, one of them, really. I shouldn't say it was his, like, the life mission, but it was a, a goal in his life to spread the gospel. Yeah, I, you probably could say that was his life goal. Really, it would be easy. It wouldn't be a stretch. But he wanted to go to Rome so badly. Why? Because you know how the saying goes, all roads lead to Rome. Uh, Rome was the center of the world. And if all roads lead to Rome, then all roads lead from Rome. If there was a church established in Rome that was thriving, then the gospel would have just access to the world just by the way it went. And so Paul, he was so happy that there was this opportunity. And, and Paul prayed for them all the time, genuinely. Paul had a heart. He, he, he remembered those who were in Rome. The church, in that difficult place, a land of debauchery. And he says, man, I pray for you guys, genuinely. And I thought, you know, that's interesting. Because when Paul says that he was praying for Rome without ceasing, for the, the Christians there, he wasn't just giving them lip service. You know, that, that wasn't just something that he was saying as a greeting, like, hey, I just want you to know I was praying for you. No, he meant it. And, and in that, I thought, boy, well, and we ought to be those who are praying for each other as well praying for those who are struggling, praying for those that are serving. Pray that the Lord would grow the Christians around us, the Christians that are far from us. It's important that we pray for each other. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know how seriously we take it sometimes. And it was just a reminder, as I, I see Paul's devotion, not only to the Lord and spreading the gospel, but to pray for those. And never underestimate the power of prayer that we've talked about so, so often. And he really... In this uh, latter half, really the, the second part of his uh, introduction, he expresses to the Roman church just how real his desire was to come and see them. And Paul's desire to see the Romans, if you guys were with us when we were going through the book of Acts, man, you remember that Paul, he had this just burning passion in his heart to go to Rome, to preach the gospel to encourage and teach believers there. As he even said, that to have fellowship and fruit uh, amongst you. And again, he traveled all throughout the Mediterranean and Asia Minor and Europe and, and all in Jerusalem. But man, his heart was for Rome. But the Lord didn't allow it. Not at first, not for a while. And Paul, man, he tried and he says in his letter here, he says, I want you to know how often I tried. Man, I tried and tried to come and see. He still hasn't seen the Romans. But this is uh, good for us to, to look at because, you know, Paul here could have, he could have become very grumpy. He could have become very uh, discouraged. Paul could have kind of just given up. Said, Lord, I've done so much for you. I've been all around the world preaching the gospel, and I have a heart to share Jesus in Rome. That's your will, that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And Lord, you're not allowing it. Why? And he could have just been a grump. He could have been disconnected and say, well, fine, then. I'm just going to 
Lord, if you won't allow this thing that I'm so passionate. But he didn't do that, did he? he? Instead, he just prayed and he trusted the Lord. He didn't focus on what he couldn't do or what the Lord wasn't doing. He focused on what he could do. He said, well, you know what? I can't go to Rome. But you know what? I can write a letter. And Paul penned the letter of Romans. And because God's delay was perfect, we're studying that letter tonight. Isn't that great? Uh, think about it. If Paul was just able to go to Romans and there was no strife or no struggle, there would be no letter. But the Lord didn't allow it. And you have to wonder if this wasn't part of the reason. But we have this masterpiece of Scripture that we get to study because Paul was operating on God's timing and not on his own timing. Now, Paul did eventually get to Rome. Boy, we read about that at the end of Acts. And it wasn't exactly the way he thought it would be either. Remember, he went there bound in chains. He went bound in chains, but along the way, he got to talk to kings and leaders and rulers and officials, just like God said he would. Uh, remember there, uh, Ananias was the one who helped Paul right after he was freshly blinded. The Lord sent him to Ananias' house, and God told Ananias when he's like, Lord, why did you send this crazy, crazy Christian murderer to my house? He said, Ananias, this man's going to do crazy good things. Not, not exactly what the Lord said. He said he's going to preach the gospel to Gentiles, to kings, and to Jews. And that's exactly what Paul did. And so the moral of that really is don't be discouraged. Don't be grumpy. Don't be disheartened when things aren't working out according to your timing. When things aren't working according to your plan. And I'll tell you this, I've said it before, I'll say it again. And I'm so grateful for all of the delays that the Lord has put in my life. Even currently, and I hope to share with you soon some of these delays that I'm very happy. But I sit back and I say, Lord, why? What's going on? How could you allow this delay? And then lo and behold, it works out to be an amazing blessing. And so Paul says, man, I've longed to come to you for a long time, but now I hope to be there. I, you know, But I'm going to write you this, this letter, and I want to, to be there present with you. So that we can, uh, so that I can bring you some encouragement. You know, he says, I, I, I want to have some fruit among you like the other Gentiles. Uh, I want to, to, to have some, uh, just not spiritual fruit. What does he say? Now I want to, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? You guys have to bear with me for a second. that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. Paul wanted to go and just be a blessing to them, to help establish this young church, to impart spiritual gifts to them, really blessings, uh, to, to share some fruit. But what I love about that is that Paul desires to go with them, but he recognizes that he's not like the big chief showing up, like, I got all the gifts, I'm going to dole them out, you guys are going to be so blessed by me. He recognizes, no, that we're going to be a mutual blessing to each other. And uh, that is such a reality in the Christian faith. You know, so often I'll come to visit, uh, even some of you guys, when you've been sick or down and out or bummed out, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go encourage those folks. And then guess who leaves encouraged? This guy right here. Uh, it's just this thing where, you know, we are the body. I love the way the Lord works, that we encourage each other that we bless each other, 
uh, it really is an amazing thing. And Paul speaks of that. Paul knew it to be true. He's like, man, I can't wait to come see you guys. I'm going to bestow some blessings upon you, but it's going to be a mutual uh, thing. And then Paul, he, he goes into this idea of, of being a debtor. Man, uh, for I am not ashamed. All right, we haven't gotten quite there yet, have we? I'm a debtor, but we have gotten there. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Uh, so as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So what does it mean when Paul says, you know, I- I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians? First of all, barbarians is not what comes to mind when we think of barbarian. Uh, barbarian really is a word that they use for anybody who wasn't a Greek. And so Paul just says, man, I'm in debt to the, the, the Greek and the barbarian, the wise, the unwise. Basically, Paul says, I'm in debt to, to everybody. That he has this, this burden, this obligation uh, burning within him. Like he owed a debt to share the gospel uh, with the entire human race, with anybody from anywhere, with any background or anything going on. Paul says, man, I have this burden to share the gospel with them. Why? Think about how much Paul's life had been changed by Jesus. Crazy if you think about it. Complete 180. Paul went from a murderer to one preaching life. He went from one bound for hell and destruction to one bound for glory in heaven. And how could he have this information, this anecdote to death, and not have a burden to share it with a lost and dying world. It was so good that he couldn't keep it to himself. Have you ever like eaten at a, just a killer restaurant? You're just like, oh my gosh, that was the best sushi I've ever had in my life, or whatever it is, whatever your thing is, steak or uh, cheeseburgers. Or, you have this desire to tell people about it. Maybe you went on a, an amazing vacation or you saw a great attraction. Uh, there's just this sense that you're like, man, I got to tell people about it so they can enjoy the same blessing that I have. I'll tell you what, the gospel of Jesus is infinitely better than any review that you have ever left on Yelp. And Paul has that burning desire to share the good news of the gospel with those who are lost. Do we? Like, what is your sense of urgency to share the gospel with people in your life? What is my sense of urgency to share the gospel with the people in my life? Am I burdened by it like Paul is? And not just for a few select, but for everybody. Man, Paul, the Greeks, the barbarian, it didn't matter. And like we talked about on Sunday, man, that was something Paul lived out. Man, Paul preached the gospel to Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, nobodies, the working man, the intellectual, the social elite, king, soldiers, guards, and prisoners. Paul says, man, I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to to preach the gospel. He's ready to share. Are we? Like, are we ready? Do, are we equipped? Like, are you ready to share your story? If someone came up to you and said, hey, man, tell me about this Jesus. Tell me how your life has been changed. Tell me why I should believe. Can you walk people through the gospel? The Romans road, like we talked about on Sunday. Because 2 Timothy tells us there in verse 2 of chapter 4 that we are to preach the word to be ready in season and out of season. To convince, to rebuke, to exhort 
with all long suffering and teaching. What a good word for us, that we are to be ready to share that hope that lies within us, as Paul would say. Pretty good stuff. And so Paul here, he's just saying, man, I, I long to come to you guys. I long to be with you to share these things. And really in verse 16, we kind of get the thesis statement of the entire uh, letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. And so Paul kind of just shares the, the, the kind of the, the message, the theme for this whole letter is really the righteousness of God revealed in Christ Jesus. And he says, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of Jesus. Now, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He was imprisoned at Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Berea. He was laughed out of Athens. He was regarded as a fool in Corinth, and he was stoned in Galatia. And yet he's still eager to preach the gospel. Uh, His enthusiasm cannot be curbed. He says, man, I'm really not ashamed of the gospel. So why would Paul be ashamed of the gospel to begin with? you got to remember that Paul was going to Rome. And Rome was the center of the world. They were a proud city. Israel? Where's Israel? Jerusalem? Jesus? A Jew who died on a Roman cross? That was so beneath a Roman to believe in a Savior who died the death of a criminal on a Roman. You know that a Roman citizen could not even be subjected to punishment on a cross. It was beneath them. Rome was a strong city. Militarily, their might was unmatched. And they had conquered Israel. But I tell you what, morally, they were a disaster. Uh, the, the thinkers of their day uh, really called Rome the cesspool of iniquity and the filthy sewer into which the dregs of the empire flood. Crazy. Military might, boy, no shortage, but moral depravity, a definite surplus. Kind of reminds me of the United States, to be completely honest with you. Man, we think we're all that. Nobody can touch us. Meanwhile, the moral fabric of our culture is just falling apart. But Paul wasn't ashamed. Even in that place where, you know, you say, well, it was just Jesus. He was just a Jewish guy who died on a cross. He wasn't ashamed, even though it wasn't what they they went for there in Rome. Why wasn't he ashamed? Because he knew it was the power of God unto salvation. That the gospel message was the anecdote. Uh, The gospel message is something that we should never be ashamed of. But it's something that the world always wants us to be ashamed of. The world ridicules. The world mocks. And you stupid Christians, you science deniers, you you phobes about every single thing that we could be, you know, just ridiculed. That whole Jesus thing is a bunch of fairy tales. But we know the truth, as did Paul, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that power, dynamis, is the word in the Greek. It's where we get our English word dynamite. I like that. The power of God is dynamite. When you think of, now, I like blowing stuff up. I think it's by the grace of God that I've never gotten my hands on dynamite. There's some minor friends of mine 
who have blown some stuff up. And I've got to be there and witness it. And I tell you, dynamite is some cool stuff. It's powerful. The gospel and the power to transform, the power to change, the power to save. Now, that analogy only goes so far because dynamite really doesn't have the power to save, right? But it's powerful. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul knows that. Man, you guys need salvation to be delivered, to be rescued from the penalty of sin. Uh, And the gospel is the anecdote that we are wretched sinners. And he's going to get into this. I mean, uh, that's where we're we're going. But this message of the gospel is for anybody who believes. Anybody who believes. What is the prerequisite for finding salvation? And you don't have to master the Bible. You don't have to log in a certain amount of hours of prayer. You don't have to hit a certain giving goal. All you have to do is believe. Believe, the Bible says. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. The gospel message, man, we don't deserve it. We can't earn it, but, but Jesus did it. And anybody who believes can be saved, believe. It's more than just a casual idea, an intellectual like, oh, I believe. Remember, pastuo is, is that, that belief put into an action. When you step onto a plane, you believe, you pastuo that it's going to fly. You put the weight of your life upon that aircraft. And that's what it is. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, those who pastuo, those who walk it out, those who trust. For the Jew first, and then the Gentile. It's interesting that there is uh, an order, that it was for the Jew first. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because we've got a long ways to go. But just know that when Jesus came, Jesus came to the Jew first. Jesus was a Jew fulfilling Jewish prophecies and a Jewish Bible. Uh, He came to, the Jews were his chosen people. They still are, but they, they missed it, right? When Jesus presented himself as the Messiah, the triumphal entry that we've studied through a bunch, he was officially rejected there by uh, the Jews, by the religious leaders, by the nation. At that moment, uh, the, millennial, the millennial reign could have been ushered in if they would have accepted Jesus and recognized him as the Messiah, but they didn't. Now, that's not to say that God is working on plan B. God, in his infinite wisdom, understood the way it would work out and that the Gentile would be given an opportunity because the Jew rejected. I bring this up because it's important for us to remember that salvation is of the Jew. That's what Jesus said in John 4.22. That salvation is of the Jew. And Paul will also go on to warn us as the church not to be too haughty. Not to look down our nose at the Jew because God is not done with the Jew and they will be saved. And so um, just keep that in mind. Um, the just shall live by faith. Uh, what does it mean that the just shall live by faith? Um, you know, pastuo, faith, trust. Uh, if you don't believe that God is, then, then how could you trust him? Hebrews 11, 6, without faith it, is, faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, you know, this, this verse there in, uh, right there in verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Faith to faith, from beginning to end. A faith, we have an initial faith 
and then our faith is strengthened as we walk with the Lord. Uh, but it, the idea of the just shall live by faith is it's more than just a one-time faith. Like I was at church, I raised my hand, I went in front of everybody, I got baptized, I now have faith, I'm moving on. No, it's this continued thing. Faith in Jesus, not a single event, but a way of life. And that's what it means uh, to live by faith. And now, in verse 18, we get into the meat and the potatoes. And this is the hear ye, hear ye. Court is in the session. Boom, gavel hits the table. Verse 18 is the open door to the courtroom. And this is where the charges are leveled against us. And from this point, through really the first three chapters, we really uh, are being... Uh, having this idea spelled out for us clearly that, man, the Gentile nation, guilty. Undeniably, the Jewish world, guilty. The entirety of the earth, guilty. Sinners before uh, the Lord. And, and that's what Paul starts with here. We'll just read through the entirety of the rest of this chapter, and then we'll look uh, through it a little bit more closely. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Ouch. Man, that is heavy. And so this section begins with God's wrath. Uh, it's the, the, the righteous response of a just God against a sinful man. Wrath is what we deserve. God's wrath. And, and we've seen God's wrath demonstrated for us throughout the Old Testament. Adam and Eve. And they sinned and what happened? Boof! They got the boot out of the garden. The, the, the angel with the flaming sword guarding it. I'm sorry, you're going to have to go out there into the world where there's a curse. You're not allowed here anymore. And we saw it with the flood. God destroyed all of humanity except for Noah and his family. 
Sodom and Gomorrah was a pretty vivid picture. We see God's wrath even in the, the natural consequences of sin that we deal with. This world will face God's wrath in a time to come, the great tribulation, when God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. The church will be taken out. We'll be enjoying a seven-year honeymoon with the Lord while his wrath is being poured out on this earth. But man, read through the book of Revelation. It is not a pleasant thing, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And then the ultimate wrath is the great white throne judgment. When there will be ultimate separation from God, weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, uh, the, the lake of, of fire, eternal punishment. Paul, in verse 16, he, he speaks of salvation. What are we being saved from? From God's wrath. That is what salvation uh, is for. It saves us from the wrath of God. God's wrath is against two. He, he spells out the object of his wrath, uh, the ungodly, uh, the unrighteous, those who suppress the truth. Uh, ungodliness is the lack of, of reverence and devotion, uh, this, this relationship that's defective with God. Uh, we had a perfect relationship with God in, in the garden, but sin ruined that. Uh, those who suppress the truth. What does it mean to suppress the truth? It literally means, uh, maybe your Bible says hold in uh, unrighteousness. Uh, some versions say that the ESV, I think, does, the, the King James. Uh, but it means to push down, to, to restrain the truth, to hinder the truth. That although the evidence is overwhelming, we suppress the truth. Why? That we might live the way that we want to live. God has given us so much evidence. He's given us the evidence that he is God through our conscience, and we are created in his image. He, he's written his law on our hearts. And we have creation that we're going to talk about here in a second. Uh, God has given us evidence through his word, through his son, through the resurrection, through the Holy Spirit that beckons to us to repent and turn to him. But we suppress the truth as sinful man. Why? Because to acknowledge the truth means to be subject to the creator. And so we, sub we suppress the truth that we might live the way that we want to. But the evidence of creation, we talked about this. We talk about it all the time because it's so clear. Uh, you know, whether you look into the seemingly black abyss of space or with a telescope, what do you see? Beauty upon beauty upon evidence upon artistry. You look at a telescope and you can go into this whole invisible world. And what do you see? Design and, and purpose. There are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life. Isn't that crazy? 200. Every single one of which must be met perfectly. From, you know, the, the speed at which the earth rotates to, to the, the, the path that the earth orbits, to the tilt of the axis, to the makeup of the atmosphere, uh, just think about Jupiter. If Jupiter wasn't exactly where it was with its magnetic field, boy, we would be a sitting duck. We would be obliterated by all the asteroids that get sucked into Jupiter. Astrophysicists, they have really kind of identified four of these like fundamental forces on our world. Gravity, electromagnetism, uh, strong and weak nuclear forces. This is the fine-tuning of our Earth. And any one of those is off by just a fraction of a fraction of a percentage, then life doesn't happen. 
And men who are much smarter than me have sat down and calculated what are the odds that life just happened on earth? That life just happened by coincidence. If you flipped a quarter 10 quadrillion times and it landed on tails 10 quadrillion times in a row, same odds that life just happened. And yet here we are. Here we are. Not just living, not just like, you know, bacteria, or, but here we are, contemplating our own existence made in the image of God. The universe itself points to a creator, and that's what Paul is saying. And God's invisible attributes, you can look at creation and you can know without a shadow of a doubt that there's a creator, and so you are without excuse. I mean, that is a, a legitimate accusation being railed against humanity. And you are without excuse to say that, oh, I didn't know, right? And the consequences of rejecting God. And Paul gets into this, and that we don't glorify him. We don't live for him. We don't love him. We don't praise him. We don't do that which we are created to do. Uh, we're not thankful uh, we, we just give ourselves the credit for all the blessings that we enjoy. But it was my ingenuity and my hard work. Well, where'd you get the oxygen in your lungs? Our hearts become darkened. We become like fools. We think that we're wise, but, but what really we have no idea. And in our wisdom, we've ditched God, the creator, and we begin to worship the created. We've made God into our image and John 3.19 says that this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. See, when, when we look at creation, again, at that base level, as the created, we are obligated to worship the creator and to absolve ourselves of that. We say, well, there must not be a God. That's a condemnation because we love our evil and we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And all these things, we, we just worship anything else. And you look at our culture, and what do we worship? We worship the creation rather than the creator. The new official religion of the United States really is climate crisis. It's, all, it's the altar that we worship at. It controls our life. These self-made, self-proclaimed alarmists say, oh man, the end of the world has come. The end of the world has been coming forever. It really is an amazing thing. And so all of these, you know, our darkened hearts and we worship the created. And then these vile passions. You know, this is where Romans get super controversial. Right? But it shouldn't be controversial. When we're reading God's word, we shouldn't be like, well, that's controversial. I don't agree with that. And you can disagree with me all you want. But this isn't my idea. This is God's idea. And when he's talking about these vile passions that, that women, you know, uh, and I'm just going to read it so I don't mess it up. But for this reason, God gave them up their vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing that which is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty for their error which was due. Now, clearly, what the Bible is speaking about, what Paul is talking about, is homosexuality. These vile passions. And this is a result of turning our backs on God. 
This is a result of not being thankful. This is a, revolt, uh, a result of, of having our hearts darkened. This is a result of worshiping the created rather than the creator. This falls right in line with this. Paul says you've been given over to these vile passions. That it's a, a perversion of creation. And is, it is a perversion of creation. When a man lies with a woman, the two become one flesh. It's beautiful and life is created. When a man lies with a man, there's death. And they receive the due recompense in their flesh. And it's interesting that these things come out in our, in our culture. It's like, oh man, there's a monkeypox outbreak in, in San Francisco. But there's really no like, you know, description of what group this monkey, like, you know, you got people thinking that they're going to get monkeypox by going to the store when it's a sexually transmitted disease between gay men. By and large, this, they receive the due, it's, it's death. AIDS was the same exact way. And can you contract AIDS heterosexually? Absolutely. Am I a scientist? I'm not. But primarily, statistically, undoubtedly, it's primarily through men having sex with men. And so it's a perversion against what is natural. It's not God's plan. It's vile. It's dishonorable. It's shameful. It's wrong for a man to burn with passion for another man. It's wrong for a woman to burn with passion for another woman. And again, you can get mad at me all you want, but God is the one who calls it, it, it vile. And people come to me and say, Jeremy, you know what? The church is too hard on homosexuality. Why is homosexuality singled out? And I want you to hear me out on this one. Because the church really is in this place that we proclaim truth. And I want you to understand sin is sin, is sin, is sin. And I don't care if it's uh, alcohol abuse or murder or lying or sexual immorality of any kind. Sin is sin and the result is death. So here's the difference between sin, just lying, cheating, murdering, stealing, cheating on your wife, and, and homosexuality. See, there is no coalition, you know, for the habitually gluttonous. Petitioning the church to say, hey, let's, let's just leave fat people alone. There is, uh, you know, no movement to normalize heroin addiction in the church. You know, pastors for smack. You know, there, there isn't. There is no, you know, uh, movement. There's no sermons being preached from the, the pulpit that declare fornication to be no big deal or murder, or lying, or, or whatever sin you want to plug in there. And yet there are those who distort God's truth, and they, they pretend to present truth, and say, hey, you know what? God's cool with homosexuality, though. And we read passages like this tonight and say, clearly, that's not true. That's false doctrine. Uh, and, and it's sweeping through the American church. We have churches in our country that are being led by gay men who say, you know what, it's okay to be gay. They're flying rainbow flags. Think of the audacity of flying a rainbow flag. That is a promise that God will never destroy the earth again with a flood. What was going on in Noah's day that caused God to destroy humanity, except for Noah? In great part was sexual immorality. And we're going to throw that in God's face and say, no, this is our symbol now. Danger. Danger. 
Martin Luther, he said this. He said, if you preach the gospel in all aspects with the exception of the issues which deal specifically with your time, you are not preaching the gospel at all. And that's the thing. I don't like to get up here and talk about stuff and be controversial. I would, you know, rather go ride my motorcycle or do whatever. I mean, you know, I don't want to receive a bunch of email, but the Lord has charged me to proclaim truth. And you cannot read God's word honestly and come to the conclusion that he's okay with homosexuality. And so why do we talk about it? Because that is the issue of our culture. And I've had people come to me and say, you know what, Pastor Jeremy, if God is so against homosexuality, then why does he make people gay? And it's a valid question. But it's not true. See, our culture is so lost that, that we are now presenting these statistics that just aren't real. You can look for studies and say, you know what, someone is born gay. But those studies, they're not science. And they start with a conclusion and then they do these shoddy experiments with tiny groups. I'm not kidding. This is not the scientific method. These studies, are, they're fringe and they're dishonest to prove their point. And the Bible tells us that when we are tempted, that no one should say, God tempted me. For God can tempt nobody and he doesn't do evil. That's what it tells us in James 1.13. We all have a propensity to sin. Every single one of us in this room. Some of us, it's alcohol. Some of us, it's lust. We all have a propensity. It's our sinful nature. But the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you except such is as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We all have sinful tendencies, but that doesn't mean that we have to act upon them. And people say, well, then why do you even care so much? I mean, you have the choice. You didn't have to talk. I could have glazed over this tonight. The temptation was there. Just read it and talk about something else. Pastors do it all the time. But here's the thing. Outside of being a pastor, being called to this, I'm going to stand before the Lord someday, and I'm going to give an account for what I preached. I'm an under-shepherd. I have the responsibility to preach the truth. But outside of that, I have a heart for the lost. Because I once was lost. I was once bound for destruction. I once bought the lie that I could just live however I wanted. And then I would get into heaven on a sliding scale. A thing that keeps humanity from God. That thing that is going to bring God's wrath upon a person's life is sin. And the second we take a sin and call it good then we absolve that person from any sort of repentance. If we stand on the pulpit and say, hey, no big deal, God's cool with homosexuality, sweet, then I don't have to repent from it. And then there's sin that stands in the way. So we allow people to paint themselves into a corner, all under the guise of love. That's what this is all about. But we're just gonna love people like Jesus loved people. Jesus didn't love people like that. He called them out and was truthful. It's not loving to allow somebody to walk in a manner that's going to cause hurt and destruction. And so, homosexuality is no different than any other sin. It just happens to be the sin right now that our culture is saying, 
this is okay. It's not sin, and we're going to do it. We're going to stamp God's approval on it. Danger. Danger. And Paul goes on to say that God gave them over to that lust and that passion. There's this point that we can cross, this point of no return, where our hearts become so hardened that we will never hear God, and he gives us over to the hardness of our heart. That's what it would seem that the Lord is saying. Pharaoh is an example of that. But I want you to understand something, that what is impossible for man is possible with God. God is a God of restoration. He is a God of miracles. He is the God of forgiveness. But he won't force us into something that we don't want. This whole idea of, of homosexuality. And people are, are stuck in it. I had a phone call, I don't know, it was probably three or four months ago now. And we get a lot of phone calls at the church from people who are just kind of going through the phone book and calling all the churches honestly and just looking for another kind of handout, you know. And we always have the same response. Hey, here's the deal. You can come to church and you can meet with the elders. We'll pray with you and we'll see if the Lord leads us to help you out or not. Not very many people come to church, unfortunately. And those who do normally get help. But I received a phone call, and I thought it was just going to be your average run-of-the-mill guy just looking for some extra gas. And he's telling me his story, how he's from the East Coast, and how he's from a Jewish family, and this and that. And I'm just waiting for, like, I'm waiting for that, can you help me out? Can you get me a gas card? Or can you? But it never came. And he began to tell me his story, how he had been a homosexual for, like, 35 years and how he was encouraged in that by his family and by his community. And how he recalled how wonderful it was to have all the support to be gay. And then he heard about Jesus. And Jesus radically transformed his life. And he said, I had no more desire for men at all. I was transformed. And I just called to talk to another Christian. To share my story and to encourage you. Here I'm thinking this guy is going to be just like this, you know, looking for a, a handout, and he just lays on me this beautiful testimony. And so as a church, we have a real thing going on in our culture, right? We just don't say, well, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't do that, and you're a bunch of sinners, and you know what God's going to give you over to the debased mind, and that's not what Jesus called us to do. But there's some middle ground between, you know, you're going to burn in hell, and cool, bro. And we're called to find that. We're called to share the gospel and love. To not condone. And man, that's a touchy thing in our culture. And I wonder how YouTube is going to respond to my sermon, honestly. <laughs> Rough stuff. I mean, Paul lays it out. That last little bit, but no one gets a free pass down to disobedient children. But here's the thing, as Paul paints the canvas black, well, he's just making the treasure of God's grace and mercy shine forth all the more. And we'll get into that. We got a couple more chapters of, man, you guys are doomed. But it's good to know we're doomed so that we desire the cure. And so this situation that we're in culturally, 
God's not biting his fingernails. He's not wringing his hands. You and I are here during the season on purpose, just like Paul was living his life during his time. Why weren't you born in the 1800s? Do you ever think about that? That's a total side rabbit trail. I won't go down. But you were born now for a reason. God has a heart for all who are lost, and he desires us to be the heralders of good news. So my prayer for us is that the Lord would help us to walk that line. That we wouldn't conform to this culture, but that also we would be those who proclaim truth and believe God to be the savior of souls that he is. We will get into the, the good news <laughs> here soon. And so, uh, yeah, it's touchy, but the Lord has equipped us. And so let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this, uh, this Bible study tonight. Thank you for your word. And the things that we find controversial, Lord, um, I'm just so grateful that there's, there's no wavering from your standpoint. Lord, that you have a perfect plan, that you're righteous, that you're holy. And Lord, that you have placed us in this, this culture in this time. Lord, and our job is still to be a light, to still be salt, to still share the gospel in love. But help us, Lord, to find that balance. Lord, to where we don't cheer on, that we don't agree with those who are practicing. Because Paul speaks out against that. But Lord, that we would be those who follow you so closely, who love you so much. Again, even as Paul began the letter, who are surrendered and owned by you set apart for your gospel and glory. Lord, that you would use us, and we ask that you would do a work, starting with us in this place, as uncomfortable as it might be, as controversial as it might seem. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Lord, that you have a plan for us. And I pray that as we go our way, Lord, that again, you would help us to be a contrast, to be a light, to be set apart and that you would use us to reach the lost. Thank you, Lord, that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And that, Lord, when you, when you said that you would give people over to their sins, that that was a warning for the sinner and not advice for the evangelist. Help us, Lord, to, to hope all things, just even as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love hopes all things, we would, that we would believe, Lord, that you could do a work in people's lives and that you would use us to do it. So bless us and keep us as we go our way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.